0: Okay, so we've got two readings this morning. The first one is from Isaiah 42 and it's in two parts. So the first part is from verses 1 to 4. So that's Isaiah 42 verses 1 to 4. And just to give you a heads up, then I'm heading to verses 18 to 25. So wonderful. Here is my servant who I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. As a bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. So now we're going to go to verses 18 to 25. Hear you, death, look you blind and see. Who is blind but my servant and death Like the messenger I send. Who is blind like the one in covenant with me? Blind like the servant of the Lord. You have seen many things but you pay no attention. Your ears are open but you do not listen. It pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted, all of them trapped in pits, Or hidden away in prisons. They have become plunder. With no one to rescue them. They have been made loot. With no one to say. Send them back. Which of you will listen. Or pay close attention. In time to come. Who handed Jacob over to become loot. And Israel to the plunderers. Was it not the Lord. Against whom we have sinned. For they would not follow his ways. They did not obey his law. So he poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of war. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. Now we're going to move to Mark's Gospel, and we're starting at chapter 3, and I'll be reading from verses 13 to 35. And this is the good news. This is where Jesus appoints... The twelve apostles. So that's Mark chapter three three, sorry, verses thirteen to thirty-five. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Bowen Ages. Sorry about that, my pronunciation's not great. Which means son of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, and Badaeus. Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who portrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law, who came down from Jerusalem, said, He is possessed by Beelzebul. I'm so sorry. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, it cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without trying to tie him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he was an impure spirit.
1: Thanks very much. Good morning, everyone. Always a joy and privilege to open God's word. It's really nice that you get the good morning, Reese, back. That was really lovely. Thanks, everyone. All righty. Uh, Mark 3. It'd be great if you have it open. Um, I'm trialing something where I don't put any of the passage we've just read on the screen. You need to have it in front of you, all right? So we'll, we'll see how that goes. If you don't like it, tell me and I'll say too bad. Um, <laughs> I'll hopefully, I'll be a bit nicer than that. Anyway. Um, <laughs> When I, when I first moved up the coast uh, two years ago, uh, one of the first things I wanted to do was join a cricket team, um, played yesterday, smashed them, it was fun. Um, I really love cricket, um, I love watching cricket, I love playing cricket, uh, but really, most of all, I thought it would be a great opportunity to meet other people, make some friends, especially people who don't come to church. But it can be a bit intimidating joining new social groups like that, can't it? Uh, We have this instinctive need to figure out um, who is the in crowd and who's the one who decides who's in and out in this kind of relational space. Um, I had a similar experience. I I took a year off college when I was studying and I I came back into a new year group and I had to figure out where did I fit in? um, How do I relate well to these people? And and how do I function as a member of this social group? Um, I'm sure it's an experience that many of us have shared um, I did a quick Google. Apparently, school started back this week. Is that true? Yes? Excellent. Good for them. Um, I'm sure we all remember that feeling, starting a new school year. Um, there's new classmates uh, maybe starting at a new school for the first time. Um, maybe you've, you've changed roles at work recently, um, or maybe you, you've joined a group project, or, or you've joined some new interest group. Um, All through life, we encounter these creations of new people groups, and we need to understand what it looks like to be a member of this group. Who calls the shots here? What does my membership depend on? What should I do to stay in, and what should I not do so that I don't get kicked out? Well, in today's passage, we see that Jesus is creating a new people. But it's not just an interest group, it's not a new classroom, a church, he is making a new people of God. And in the stories that we read in this chapter of Mark's Gospel, they're going to shine a light on how membership works. Who's in, and for now, sadly, who's out. But before we get into it, it's worth just reminding ourselves a little bit of the Gospel so far that we've been reading. It all began, I trust you remember, with Mark's big heading, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And then John appears and he's preaching a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. And he looks forward to someone who is going to come and baptise with the Holy Spirit. And right after that, Jesus bursts on the scene he's baptized, the Holy Spirit descends on him, a voice from heaven declares that he is God's beloved Son, and then Jesus begins, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. And Jesus has been proclaiming that good news, that gospel that people are to believe. The kingdom of God is near because God's King has arrived. And he has brought with him forgiveness of sins. We saw it. He forgave the paralytic just a few weeks ago. He came as a doctor for the sick to bring righteousness for sinners. And he has made grand demonstrations of this kingdom of God breaking into the here and now. He has healed diseases. The lame walk. Demons are powerless before the authority of God of God's Spirit-empowered King. But along the way, we've also seen tensions rising, haven't we? And we saw this very clearly last week. At first, the religious leaders, they thought to themselves, why does this fellow, fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. And then they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners, getting a little more aggressive? Then they challenged him, look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? before we saw finally, the Pharisees went out and they began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The kingdom of God is here. It's here in Jesus' preaching, in His forgiving, it is made manifest in His miracles. But opposition is rising. There are those who want to restrain this kingdom and this king. And so we come to today's section, with these tensions bubbling under the surface. If the existing religious crowd are the ones who are against Jesus, what does that mean for the kingdom that He brings? What does it mean for those religious leaders? We're going to dig in here and we're going to find out. Our section in chapter 3, from verses 13 onwards, it starts with what can feel like almost an innocuous piece of organisational infrastructure. Um, In verses 13 and 19, well, uh, back in chapter 1, you might remember, Jesus had said, uh, let us go somewhere else to nearby villages so I can preach there also. That's why I've come. Jesus' job as He's here is to preach. And as the crowds have been increasing and gathering to Him, following Him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, Idiomia, across the Jordan, Tyre, Sidon maybe he just needs a bit of help, right? Some others to delegate his speaking appointments to, to speed up service at the healthcare clinic, and it all comes with this historical flair, this nice list of names there uh, that you hope might come up at a trivia night, because you'll actually know that question. Um, But as is often the case with Scripture, when we slow down, when we pay attention to the details, we notice that there's actually something of incredible significance happening in these verses as Jesus calls the 12 apostles. Maybe as you heard it read earlier, a few bells started to ring in the back of your head. Notice the location. If you look there in verse 13, Jesus went up on a mountainside Throughout the Bible, mountains are the locations of important, significant moments between God and His people. That should already be ringing a bell. And notice as well who He appoints. He appointed the twelve. Twelve gathered together on a mountain. The bells in the back of our minds should be pealing, tolling, crashing with sound as we see this moment unfold before us reminding us of something we've seen before because it was on a mountain that 12 gathered centuries earlier with a purpose to be commissioned as God's people in the covenant agreement at Mount Sinai. Way back in the book of Exodus, God called Moses to the side of a mountain along with representatives from the 12 tribes of Israel and a covenant was made. God laid out the invitation for them. He said, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. And the people responded. They said, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And there in that moment, this loose amalgamation of refugee tribes, escapees from Egypt, became something more. That is when they became a nation, became a people, became God's people. And so as Jesus gathers 12 to himself on the mountain, these are the bells we should hear. This isn't just nice information or a new org chart. This is a new people of God whom Jesus is forming. The new kingdom of God has come. Old wine cannot be poured into new wineskins. And so Jesus is starting new. Who will be the people of this new kingdom, we may have been asking. And here's our first look. A new twelve. A new people of God. And just like back on Mount Sinai, where God told His people how they were supposed to live... We get a little peek here at how the new people of God are to live because Jesus appoints them, you might notice, to two tasks. He appointed them that they might be with Him and that they might be sent out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. And so, what are the new people of God, members of this kingdom, to be like? Well, first and foremost, they are those who might be with Jesus those alongside the King, those whose first priority is relationship with the Spirit-anointed Christ in whom God the Father delights. There have been a bunch of controversies already in Mark's Gospel, all kinds of things to argue about, uh, questions over fasting and feasting, about Sabbath rest and miracles and restoration, and there's going to be a whole lot more controversies to come. But through them all, the most important thing remains. Being with Jesus is where the people of God need to be. But the second thing they're appointed to, that they might be sent out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. The new people of God are those who join King Jesus in His kingdom work. The twelve here are special, yes. Uh, They have particular Christ-given authority in their preaching. And they will perform miracles in His name that I don't think we ought to expect of ourselves. But this basic purpose, joining Jesus in His kingdom work, is a purpose shared by all of God's new people. It's worth acknowledging, though, it's not out of need or necessity that Jesus invites us. It is out of kindness and grace that our King invites us to join Him in His kingdom work, in proclaiming good news, in making disciples, participating in His kingdom building as He works through us to rescue people from the dominion of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of the Son. That is what the new people are like. The first thing we see this morning. Jesus is creating a new people of God and a people who are with Him doing His kingdom work. That's 1 to 9, sorry, 13 to 19. And then the the rest of the passage that was read for us here, it forms a classic little Markan sandwich. There's a sandwich I found. It's a literary technique that Mark actually uses quite a number of times throughout his Gospel, where one story will start... And then it kind of gets interrupted by another story before returning to the initial story. You you can see how that makes a sandwich, I hope. It's designed, as he uses this tool, to help us, the reader, notice the similarities and differences between the two stories and see how they relate to one another. And so we're going to look at this one here. We'll start actually with the meat of the sandwich, which comes in verses 22 to 30 and then we'll look at the bread, and I apologize to vegetarians in the room, you can fill in meat with whatever you put on a sandwich. Um, That's where Jesus' family get involved in the bread, and then I'll I'll make some observations on what I think these two stories are doing together as he forms this delicious sandwich with a wonderful cross-section. So firstly, the meat of the sandwich, uh, the interaction with the scribes, Um, there we see, I think, that it is not the religious who make up Jesus' new people of God, but the forgiven. So Jesus, again, He is teaching in a home with this huge crowd. Uh, The scribes, some of the Pharisees, they've come along to listen. And having seen all that Jesus has done, they've seen Him healing, they've seen Him preaching, they've seen Him cast out demons, they come with a very serious accusation. He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. They accused Jesus of possession by Beelzebul. Uh, or the one who is immediately equated there, the prince of demons. Uh, this figure, the, a ruler of evil spirits, probably Satan himself. The religious leaders, they've, they've looked at Jesus' as miracles. They've seen his authority over demons, authority he's just shared with the twelve to go out with their preaching of his word and rather than acknowledge that this is the glorious work of God, the work of the Spirit-anointed servant of the Lord, the one promised to come and bring justice to rescue the oppressed and set the prisoner free. No. Instead, they say that is the work of the devil they look good in the face, and they call it evil. The very ones who should have known their scriptures best, the very ones who should know who is in front of them, as they look at Jesus, Spirit-anointed servant king, they say, this is a work of Satan. And not only is it absolutely wicked but it is just straight up foolish and silly. And so Jesus points that out to them. How can Satan drive out Satan, he says? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If you're, if you're in a team sport and your team are playing against themselves, that, that's never going to work. It's a lose-lose situation. And while Satan is absolutely, incredibly foolish... He is not that stupid. And so, in reply, Jesus gives them a picture of what is really going on. He tells them a parable. No one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Jesus has told us he's come to preach, he has come to redeem the prisoner, to rescue the oppressed. Not from earthly powers, but from the power of sin, death, and the devil. And while the devil may appear mighty, uh, Paul will call him the God of this age. He looks like a strong man ruling over his house and kingdom. He is not invincible. There is one, a robber, if you will, a, a rogue, a thief who is day by day sneaking into that strong man's house, looping rope after rope around him, binding that once strong ruler and plundering him blind from under his very nose. It's, it's almost a, a story of a, a classic heist movie. You might be into that, the, the lovable protagonist with winsome charm hatching a master plan. This is how he's going to get back at the powers that be, how he can retrieve what's his all along, a bit like, um, like George Clooney in Ocean's Eleven, or George Clooney in Three Kings, or George Clooney in Fantastic Mr. Fox. <laughs> but it is stunning how many heist movies he's in. But Jesus's heist that he's on here, it has far higher stakes. And unlike those films, the success is never in doubt. Jesus, as He's been performing these miracles, He is undoing the work of Satan in the world. He is binding that strong man, undermining His power and strength and setting the people that He has oppressed free, that they might not walk under the tyranny of the devil, but walk free under the loving reign of God's great King. It is exactly what God had promised back in our Old Testament reading in Isaiah 42. There, the Spirit-anointed servant of the Lord, the one in whom the Father delights, brings justice to a world suffering under the unjust evil works of the devil. And yet, in that, in that chapter of Isaiah, it goes a bit strange in the back half. Because there we see what we've seen in our passage of Mark 3. Israel and her leaders, the ones that were supposed to be God's servant to the world, instead they are the ones who are blind. Blind to what's in front of them. Deaf to the authoritative words of God on the lips of Jesus. Where They were supposed to be God's righteous servant. Instead, they choose to call good evil and they substitute darkness for light. But in front of them, Jesus is plundering the strong man. He is binding Satan in his earthly ministry, a task that for Jesus will reach its completion in his ultimate defeat of Satan on the cross, where all of the devil's strength will be stripped from him. Isaiah had said back there in 42 that the people had become plunder with no one to rescue them. They'd been made loot with no one to say, send them back. Until now, where that servant, Israel, had fallen short. The true servant, appointed by the Spirit, a delight to his Father, has come now to plunder God's people away from their captor. The new people of God whom Jesus is forming... The new people that began with the call of the twelve will be the ones who Jesus wants, who He has plundered from Satan, robbed away from the devil himself. But what does that actually look like? And I think that's where Jesus goes next. The plundered are those whom Jesus has forgiven. He says it there in verse 28, I assure you, and and truly i tell you if you um i didn't write this and so i'm distracting myself already but this is the first time jesus uses that phrase truly i tell you in mark he'll use it a number of times for really important things he needs to say people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter jesus tells us any blasphemy or slander any misspoken word against God, any unloving moment towards God or neighbour, through action or inaction, all of our sins, Jesus says, can and will be forgiven. When He chooses us, just as He chose the twelve, when we respond to His call as they did, When we are with Jesus by faith in Him, that is how He is plundering us and all our sins are forgiven. Now, I'm sure some of us might be itching to get to the next verse. Maybe it stood out to you as it it was read. but, But I want us to dwell for a moment on this verse here, verse 28. This is the deep and rich undercurrent of Mark's gospel so far. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe because that is where forgiveness is found. The forgiveness that John the Baptist had preached on. The forgiveness that the paralytic experienced. The forgiveness that will ultimately be won by Jesus' death on a cross for you and for me. That forgiveness is on offer to all, free and full. People whom Jesus has plundered as they put their faith in him will be forgiven all of their sin. It is a clear slate. The certificate of debt, the the charge of legal indebtedness cancelled, nailed to a cross, Paul will say. As far as east is from the west, says the psalmist, so far has he removed his transgressions from us. What a gift! What a kindness, what grace lavished upon us by our merciful, forgiving, good and just King and Lord, Jesus Christ. And it is only in light of that truth that verse 29 comes. The contrast Jesus gives is that those who would blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, that person will never be forgiven. It is a verse that has caused a fair kerfuffle over the centuries and countless ink pots have been spilt over it. What does Jesus mean here? Could this be me? But if we continue to the next verse, I think we get the key to understanding he said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. The scribes we've already seen, they would looked at Jesus, they'd seen his good work, all that he'd been doing to bring the kingdom to bear in the world, and instead of acknowledging it the good work of God, they accuse him of evil. It is not the, good, the, the work of, of the spirit, it is instead the work of the devil, they say. It's a stance that they had begun before, and that they will carry to the end a stance that will drive them to put Jesus to death. What's on view here, I think, in verse 29 as Jesus speaks, it's not a slip of the tongue, it's not an ignorance that has been repented of, it is the consistent, intentional, reality-denying claim that the Spirit-anointed servant of God is instead a worker of evil. That the beloved Son, on whom the Spirit had descended, and by whom is by that same Spirit is bringing the kingdom of God, instead claiming that he is a charlatan, a liar, a servant of Satan. This this blasphemy, this slander against the Holy Spirit. It is that committed stance of heart and mind that Jesus uh, has in view. This, this turning against Him, that is the sin for which guilt will remain because that is the greatest sin of all. One commentator I was reading, James Edwards, he puts it like this. He said, Mark places this saying as a warning, not as a condemnation or a cause for anxiety. The same saying that warns against describing evil to Jesus also assures of God's willingness to forgive, all the sins and blasphemies of men. Anyone who is worried about having committed the sin against the Holy Spirit has not yet committed it, for anxiety of having done so is evidence of the potential for repentance. There is no record in Scripture of anyone asking forgiveness of God and being denied it. And so, friends, if you're here and this verse makes you anxious, maybe makes you fearful, if you think this could be you, if you could be one who has slandered the Holy Spirit and will never be forgiven, hear these words. Yes, Jesus speaks a real warning, but for those who hear, those who repent, who turn to Jesus in faith, the stance of Jesus towards you will never be one of condemnation, but always one of grace and forgiveness. All the sins and blasphemies of men and women have been dealt with at the cross. Complete forgiveness for all who would trust in the great plunderer of the strong man, the spirit anointed servant, the King Jesus. The meat of our sandwich. It makes us clear who is in this coming kingdom, this new people of God. It is not the religious. No amount of being learned or of looking righteous or of saying the right things will get anyone into God's coming kingdom because all of us have sinned and are plunder of the strong man, Satan. Yet Jesus is the great binder of that strong man and he has plundered all of those whom he calls to himself, all who would gather to him by faith and he offers forgiveness. Those are the ones in the coming kingdom the plundered and forgiven by Jesus. So now we turn our eyes to the bread of this Mark and Sandwich, the story around that story as Jesus' family enter the scene. Having seen the huge crowds that Jesus is starting to gather, His mother and brothers, they come to put a stop to this whole charade. He's out of His mind, they say. We have to take charge here. Coming to the one who is bringing the kingdom, they seem to think that they ought to be the ones in control, not Him. They know what's really going on. Not, not Jesus, he's, he's gone crazy. But when it's brought to Jesus' attention, He doesn't go out and see them, He doesn't rebuke them. Instead, He takes it as a teaching moment to show us a bit more of who this new kingdom of God, who this new people will be, this new family that He is making. It is not the biological, but the obedient. For centuries, God's people had understood themselves as a people of blood. It was to Abraham and his descendants that God had originally made covenant, made promises, a promise of land and people and blessing. Promises that were handed down to Isaac, Abraham's son, and then to Isaac's son, Jacob, the one who would be called Israel, and who would then have 12 sons that become the 12 tribes. Being in God's family had always meant being part of this biological family. And in a way, this this feels a little bit wrong to say, but maybe it helps. Um, It's kind of like the Kardashians. Um, What? (laughs) I know, right? You never thought you'd hear them brought up, at um, you. What is it that made Chloe and Kim and Courtney, and unfortunately I didn't have to Google their names, um, what made them famous? I just knew it. It feels dirty. It was just the family they belonged to, right? They were related to this one I had to Google Robert Kardashian. He was a big shot lawyer. I think he was O.J. Simpson's lawyer. And so because of that association, they were automatically famous. They just got to have money, and everyone's like, wow, they're incredible. Hopefully you're not like they're incredible, because anyway. Um, In a way, the nation of Israel was kind of like the Kardashians. They were the ultimate recipients of nepotism. They were God's people only because they were born into it. But as Jesus creates a new Israel, with a new 12, that will no longer be the case. Instead, who does Jesus show us is in His new family? Who are the ones He deems to be members of the kingdom? It's whoever does God's will. And we got a hint, I think, as to the core of that back in chapter 1. And I've alluded to the moment already. When Jesus was baptized and the Spirit descends on Him like a dove, God the Father declares from heaven, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. The will of God is to love and take delight in His Son, Jesus Christ. And at this moment, as Jesus' biological family are seeking to restrain Him, to take Him away as if He is mad, instead we see a crowd gathered at His feet to hear the words of His mouth. A people so enraptured by who He is and what He is doing that they are willing to be crammed into a house so tightly they don't even have room to eat, perhaps a sandwich. They're delighting... Thank you, there's one little love. They're delighting in Jesus. They're doing His will, listening to Him. That's what the new people of this new kingdom do. It's not the biological family anymore but the family of the obedient who do God's will, who will be found in His kingdom, open for all. And now remember, this is a sandwich, this section. Mark wants us to compare these two stories, not the religious but the forgiven, not the biological but the obedient. He wants these two stories to illuminate one another even further. This might be something you might like to chat at, at morning tea. Maybe you've got some great observations. I hope you do. Um, but for now, I'm going to offer one that I think stood out to me. What is, uh, what is it that Jesus' family came to do, right? They came to take charge of Him, to seize Him and, and control Him, and I've given away the punchline, um, to, res- to restrain Him. And yet, they can't. They're held at bay by the kingdom that Jesus is, is building, these people that block them from getting to Him. And what does Jesus tell us He's been doing in His ministry, in His interaction with the scribes? Well, He's binding the strong man, tying him up, restraining him. Jesus will not be restrained by His family, because He is the great restrainer. Jesus is on a mission A mission to bind up Satan, to plunder those trapped in sin and death. And no matter what anyone does, the scribes, the Pharisees, his own family, even Satan himself, Jesus will not be restrained in his mission to build God's new kingdom. The forgiveness he is bringing, offering to all who come to him by faith, cannot be restrained. It will be lavished mercifully upon all who respond to Jesus' call. The family that he is building, that he is drawing to himself, people who delight in him as God's servant, their saviour, their king, cannot be restrained no matter what the established social structures might be, whatever the shortcomings of the infrastructure there, even the foolishness of his own followers will see as we continue through Mark. No, Jesus will not be restrained from building God's new kingdom. And that, I think, is a delicious sandwich. Throughout each of these three parts we've seen this morning, Jesus is forming a new people of God, those who are with him, those who are forgiven, those who do the will of God. And the thing joining them together, I think, is that that all of those three things, they're expressions of faith, aren't they? Of trust in Jesus, that he is the one he claims to be that we want to delight in who he has shown himself to be, casting our lot in with Jesus and saying, I am with him. That's what it's about. Allowing him to plunder us from the strong man and show us forgiveness for our sins, the sins that put us in possession of that strong man in the first place. Instead, choosing to listen to God, to do his will, to love what he loves, most notably to love the Lord Jesus. All things that are expressing a giving over of ourselves, of our authority, of our lives to the one who will not be restrained as he builds us into the kingdom of God. Friends, starting with the 12 on that mountainside, Jesus is calling a people from all over the world to be with him, to join him in his kingdom building work to strive with the power that He so powerfully works in them. And if you're someone who has put your faith in Jesus, if you're striving to delight in Him day by day and to see His gospel proclaimed to all the earth, there is nothing that will ever restrain Jesus from welcoming you in, now and into eternity, all thanks to His loving, forgiving, plundering death for you and for me you pray with me heavenly father we are so thankful for our lord jesus the great plunderer of the strong man the builder of your kingdom thank you for this this picture of a new people uh, a people who are forgiven a people who are obedient a people who are with jesus may that be true of us help us to love and trust in jesus the great plunder of our souls, and to delight in Him all the more day by day for His glory and beauty and power. Amen.